Welcome to Volume 3 of the African Mobilities Podcast Series, where Jeb Chumba and Walila Wal discuss virtual politics and digital colonization. They also explore creativity and how it can be useful for imagining the future in technology and the environment. Jeb Chumba is an artist, activist, and founder of African Digital Art and Future Lab Africa. She's played a significant role to transform African digital spaces, and she was listed as one of the 20 youngest power women in Africa, 2012 by Forbes, as well as Africa's top 25 women achievers by The Guardian. A cultural digital ambassador, Jeb Chumba's work centers around Africa's cultures of technology. Walila Wal from Lagos is a Lagos-based writer and was recently named to the Quartz list of top 20 African innovators. Educated at the University of Bath, the London School of Economics and the University of Oxford, Wale is a senior researcher at Harvard Business School and the founder and editor-in-chief of The Republic, a journal of Nigerian and African affairs. The key word for today's podcast is imagination. So let's talk about Africans as consumers and as innovators of software. In 2017, you gave a talk at Update or Die, the conference in Montreal, Canada. And you mentioned that software in Africa is imported and that most of our IP rights are owned by foreign operations, which is a very interesting observation, especially because we both come from countries that are supposedly at the frontier of technology in Africa. Yourself being from Kenya, I'm from Nigeria. You're based in Nairobi, I'm based in Lagos, which are supposedly two of the most prominent tech ecosystems in Africa. How do you think this imbalance, this inequality of ownership of software, of technology in these spaces, in these African communities, relate to the notion of digital colonization? Can you speak more about digital colonization? And what do you think Africans are currently doing about this situation? What I can speak to is my personal experience, which is actually quite interesting because I became a person in the digital sphere right when Africa became this place where everyone was so interested in, in terms of like digital. You know, even in Kenya, we were called the Silicon Savannah. We had mobile money. All of a sudden we had these tech companies. All of a sudden we were figuring things out that the rest of the world didn't really understand how to use all of this digital technology, how to use the internet. Kenya, for some reason, took to it like water. Like we just became addicted to it, you know? And why, why do you think that was? I think it became out of a crisis, out of a necessity. If you go back, we were sort of conditioned, this is a colonization part of it, to become capitalist, to like produce. And like we had a president slash beloved dictator, like the, President Moy, it's like now we love him, um, uh, like sort of gear us towards like becoming this African country of productivity, you know? And so like um, all of these t- tools that the digital, the internet and um, technology afforded us were just more ways for us to be like even more efficient. And then all of a sudden we had a political crisis, an election campaign where the television, the media were telling you, everything's okay, everything's fine. But then there was violence, people were getting hacked to death, you know, and you couldn't trust the state media. And this is when like everyone moved to their mobile phones, you know, starting sending group SMSs, um, 
started texting each other, started sending money to each other, like trying to innovate ways to communicate outside of this like state enterprise, you know? And I think since then we were very great early adopters of technology. It's a similar story with Nigeria as well, specifically to um, mobile technology, you know, like the 90s, the late 90s, the early millennium, we just saw this explosion um, you know, with people using mobile phones. And, you know, the question that I, that, you know, that then, that, that then brings me to is, you know, do you find that, you know, we use technology, you know, in place of, um, I guess, infrastructure, in place of like, you know, more, you know, solid infrastructure, you know, we, a lot of conversations about how Africans use technology tends to have this concept of leapfrogging. And, you know, you've, we, we have, I think, for example, um, a Kenyan that comes to mind, in this is Ori Okolo who mentioned, I think he, she, she mentioned, she mentions this idea that, you know, we can't entrepreneur our way out of, out of infrastructural challenges, but it seems like that's what's, you know, that's kind of what ends up happening most of the time. Yeah. You have in Nigeria, for example, people using, you know, people relying on mobile phones so that they don't have to rely on roads anymore to kind of, um, to connect with people. In, in Kenya, you seem to mention that, you know, people took to Mpesa, for example, you know, could that be because, for example, there were no, you know, there were no alternative means? Yes, we were, we were able to find these amazing solutions, you know, through technology, through um, the explosion of, let's be specific of like, um, actually mobile mobility having i think that's what technology introduced is mobility for us for us to connect with there's like in kenya there's a huge relationship between a rural area and the city life and for for a long time you had to travel these long roads to go back up country to like pour your resources in and the city represented the place in which you made your money you made your wealth you know and so um, I think the introduction of internet technologies provided a shortcut. Now you don't have to go all the way to, to travel 200 kilometers on a road that you don't know if you're going to get jacked, you don't know if it's there, you don't know what's going to happen, um, and send your grandma some money, you know, and, and that changes like the entire, the entire community completely, you know. So all of these things like that people don't, like we forget sight like of all these things have a miniature effect on each of us in our culture. You know, I think it's very interesting that a lot of people speak about um, data as the new oil, especially when you consider, um, you know, our legacy with oil. And it's this kind of like, it's this really interesting um, way of presenting data as something or presenting this relationship between data and oil as something to aspire to. It's like data is the new oil. And you're kind of like, but have you guys looked at the Niger Delta? Have you seen what has happened there? Have you seen, you know, the impact of oil in, in, you know, in that context? And for me, it's kind of just like, it's a scary thing because if this is what we've done with oil, and we're thinking, and, and, we, and, we're, and we're assuming that there's a, a relationship between data and oil, and that data has been treated as the new oil. Is there something for us to be worried about? And then it raises questions about what are people doing with my data? What is the future of data? What are the consequences that data will have? What are the wider environmental impacts that might come from you know this explosion of big data? And this is not something that you find in the conversation. Instead, what you find is you know this kind of shift towards thinking about connectivity, towards thinking about data as something 
that is more to do with human rights or something that is more to do with development, which is not to say that people don't deserve a, or have a right to the internet, but that we should ask more questions about who is framing that narrative. I think that for me, one of the most interesting things has been this conversation around everyone being connected and everyone um, and everyone being online. When we all know that we don't have the same measures of security, when we all know that we don't have the same um, um, uh, that we don't have the same understanding of our of our um, data footprint. And when you have those inequalities, when you have those imbalances, that's trouble. And so when people talk about data being the new oil, for me, it, 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 you know, it's, it's a very, very scary thing. It's a very scary thing, but it's not something that comes up in the narrative at all. Can I tell you, can I tell you a very interesting story that I've been dying to tell? Like, I've been dying to tell this story because, like, no one will believe me except for, like, now we live in such a crazy time that it makes sense. I went to a all-women's college in Massachusetts in 2000 and something, early, mid-2000s, let's just say. I don't want to date myself. And we heard on campus, one of my friends told me, oh my gosh, there's this thing, there's this place you go and you can meet all these people. And we're in all-women's college, so we're like, who can we meet, you know? And what they were introducing us to was actually Facebook. Like the Facebook that now has become the empire of Facebook. And it was run by a bunch of nerds. And like they tried all these things to get all these women colleges to join because it became like a whole site of just dudes, you know, and they were like concerned. So they came and pitched really, really like they pitched to us like, yo, man, join us. Like, you know, to increase like the number of users that they were. They were. And then now like cut to Facebook is a humongous like, empire that is now controlling the way we manage our lives like these are the nerds like these are the people who you are expecting to have like cohesive coherent um knowledge about the philosophy of what is the human life what does data mean what is the future look i mean these are people like who like came up with technologies you know and that's the thing that i think is missed like we expect like we see things like as if these people like sort of have an idea of what they're making or what's going on and that's not it's not as thoughtful as you would think of you know i kind of want to move the conversation a bit something very interesting about um you know how we use the internet is how you know again just you know it, it's 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 about this this tool that's supposed to be that's supposed to be this kind of problem um, solver, which, you know, in reality is not always the case. The internet is supposed to be this bridge that brings everyone together. But, you know, if you ask certain people in the world, they'll tell you that, you know, we've never been as disconnected or as divided um, as, as, you know, ever as we are um, today. In 2017, at Maputo Fast Forward in Mozambique, you mentioned the importance of asking ourselves why are we using the internet and who gets to use it when and where? I was wondering if you could speak more about the politics of internet usage, the idea that there's a kind of way that we should be using the internet, but also this idea that there are other ways that, um, that people use the internet, other subversive ways. So, you know, the internet has really become this site of political struggle. You're looking at feminists all over the world, you know, rallying together and launching um, hashtag movements that have real tangible impacts on the ground. And in Nigeria, you have, for example, people who use it for all kinds of reasons, from business to even online scamming to fraud, all kinds of things. 
But it seems there's still a single narrative about how people, especially Africans, are expected to use the internet. You know, the internet is supposed to be this kind of, you know, of solution to to to, the, to our lives. Whereas the internet just seems to be more of a neutral force. It's neither good nor bad. What do you, what do you think? My travel within the continent made me realize that people consume the internet in completely different ways. And it's been interesting to see how corporations outside of Africa have responded to it. Still to come, Jeb Chimba speaks about her work, African digital art. How was starting African digital arts? What was your experience like? I've always loved technology because it was it served as sort of escapism for me. I think maybe um, I moved around a lot as a child, you know, and I was put in really weird situations. And like um, technology sort of like gave me a way to like create from this chaos. Um, I thought it was all me, but I think I come from a generation of women who have this. My mom has a PhD in fashion technology. Like, what? And she also has triplets. She's had triplets. So, like, I think we... I come from a line of women who sort of create things out of complete chaos. And I think technology was the thing that um, was the fastest thing to, like, get something in my madness in my mind. And so I think, like, this exploration of curiosity... And this like ability to create things from my imagination with technology, sort of, and then the time that I was living in, sort of made me find digital art and this like huge, amazing place of uh, uh, of things. And African digital art started um, because my I was doing my masters and my advisor told me, oh, there's no digital art in Africa, so you won't pass. Like you won't find any research, so just stop. And then I decided, no, that. Yeah. And I'm like, that's crazy because like I have five friends who are animators. I have four friends who are doing this stuff and I have people who are doing, you know, all sorts of things in technology. So how can this be true? And I so I, I defiantly I went and bought AfricanArt.com URL. That was the days in the Internet where like you decided you were going to be rich because you bought a domain name like Africa.com and you'd be like, ha ha ha, in 10 years, <laughs> you know, pizza.com or something was going for millions at that time. So I decided to just park this place and then African oh, just became, I featured my the people that I knew and then people would write to me and say like, oh, I'm in Cameroon, I'm an animator. I can't believe like people are doing this stuff. Like, can I send you my work? Can you show my work that's going on? And then like over the years, it's become this archive of like what we are. And it, it became part of the movement of saying, as Africans, we are just like everybody else. Like we are creative. We are like, we've contributed so much to visual culture and technology and everything. And we're still doing that, you know? And I think it also just became a pool and source of inspiration for me as well. I find the idea of platforms, especially African platforms, very interesting because you're absolutely right. Platforms are, in many ways, archives in their own rights. And Africans haven't really been done well or done justice by archives. And I was wondering, do you think that, you know, this history of, 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 of injustice and, you know, our current usage of the Internet, especially as so many of us, you know, 
are using the internet, establishing new platforms. Do you think that this, you know, this creates, uh, or our usage or our being more present on the internet creates a more representative, potentially more representative future? When you think about the future of African culture, when you consider, you know, how we've how it's been treated in the past, how we currently record ourselves and how we store and how our memories and our culture, do you see a future in which, you know, Africans have more agency in in, in the recording of African um, culture and the recording of African history? Do you see a future in which we have more platforms like African digital arts? Do you see digital arts specifically as something that lends to a more representative African future? Yeah, that's really interesting you asked that because um, because I started African Digital Arts, I became labeled a futurist. And I think I resisted that because underneath being labeled a futurist at that time became this insinuation that, oh my gosh, we have here a unique species, an African female with a computer. Yeah. Oh, what is this? Like, what interesting. And I was like being examined like some exotic species and being asked like, oh, what do you think the future of Africa? And it really annoyed me um, to the point where I did this exhibition, actually. This exhibition, this amazing exhibition was run by um, uh, Dr. Tegan Bristow um, called Post-African Futures, which was like an anti-African futurism exhibition, but nobody read like anything so it just like made people even more convinced that now I'm a futurist so now I felt like wow okay now I have to really take responsibility of what this means um and to a lot of people it meant like African in space suits you know those African suits and they were willing to give you money if you sort of performed that um and but then then came other questions about like um what is like African futurism then? Um, what is African science fiction? What does that mean? Like, what does it look like? And then this discovery that Africans and actually black people have been excluded from the future, like future imagining. Like this is a really amazing space for exploration that has not been available to us. In fact, like many cultures in Africa think, oh, it's, it's, it's kind of bad juju to like think about like 50 years from now it's kind of bad to talk about it it's kind of bad to think about you know <laughs> it's interesting it, it's we're allowed to go back and think of our ancestors you know um but the, the space forward is kind of like blank you know and I think I that's when I committed myself sort of to explore this so what do you think the significance of African imagination is given that context how do you define imagination and why does imagination become important? Why is it important for us as Africans even to imagine this future? There is a space in which we occupy where all of these people that we know have influenced knowledge and in who we are as human beings and understanding have always returned to source, like have always returned to, within Africa in these spaces. But we as Africans have sort of a blindness to that. We always feel as if our source of problems, our source, I mean, our source of problems, yes, our source of solutions, our source of everything must come externally first and then, you know, make an influence on who we are. But I think now is a time that we have a pause break, like mandated to look internally and see what do I have accessible to me? 
a lot of what ended up happening was you had something, you know, I'll, I'll take like a very basic stab at this, which is kind of thinking about text as coming on top and then maybe, you know, physical sculptural artifacts as second before anyone considered oral, you know, or, orality. The issue with, you know, oral culture, which most a lot or, or a large volume of, of African history um, was kind of captured and uh, or, 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 or contained um, within was just dismissed. It was considered, you know, unreliable. It was considered something that didn't necessarily lend itself towards Western archives. So, I mean, Hugh Trevor Roper, popular historian, when you then see projects like Future Labs, which is an oral project, which taps into our culture of orality, which taps into, you know, the notion of, of, of the West African, if I, if I use the West African context, the West African griot, whose job was to preserve history through oral means, it's, it, it gains a wider significance. And I think that that's, that's what makes this project so, you know, so important, so significant. My motivation was only to communicate with a generation like an architect, like builds a building and thinks of, oh, long after I die, this building's gonna be here. I wonder what it's gonna look like. Is it gonna be an eyesore to the people here? Are they gonna even notice it? You know, like, are they gonna really notice it? <laughs> Which are the buildings in Nairobi. You can tell the architect's like, I want to be here. Please notice me. I'm gonna build the biggest building, even though it makes no sense. Um, um, I think I just wanted to have a conversation with the future. Like, people who would look back at this time and be like, 2020 was nuts. Or this time in Africa when they got the internet was nuts. Because I, I also don't want this generation that comes after us to be like, they had the internet, they had, like, food, they had sunshine, they had all of these things, and they just sat there and complained about what had happened for a 100 years. As a human person, I think it's engineered in us to think about peasant, past, present, future, and in which we're relating to it. We even do it in our language. We even do it in everything that we're doing. Um, so I think that, like, I think that even now I'm seeing in 2020 as people are seeing, like, I can't, I can't manage time. I'm laid off or I'm sequestered or whatever. I'm gonna start growing something. I'm getting into a time zone that is different from what the news is telling me, this time cycle. Every 30 seconds, there's a new emergency or the world is, or Trump has done something or somebody in your president has done something or the world, you know, there's a new policy. I think people are not trying to integrate into like what the earth, planet, human, animal, like why as a human species we're here. Like, and it's really amazing that we forget that. What I can yeah. use is like, the what's a metaphor of planting a seed you know um you can i think we should be more in the practice of just like investing in i don't know i always think about the legacy of the people who left who aren't so far removed from me like wangari mathai is like a huge person in kenya you know she's a female scientist who won the nobel peace prize who led this like in uh, monumental movement that was recognized everywhere except for her own country where people in her own country made her feel like she was nuts she was a terrible mother she was like like not bringing progress she was arrested she like faced all these sort of natural consequences because these dire consequences 
because of her belief in this idea of just planting a seed and thinking of a future that didn't exist to her, of like placing herself outside of her, you know, her, her, her moment and like dedicated to a vision. Like, I think the most, it's what she says, the most revolutionary act that you can do is planting a seed and taking care of it. And I think that we should be in daily practices like that, like connecting into things that actually make us human, connecting back to our food, our resources, our family, mm-hmm. like um, the earth. The, we, everybody's been raising alarms about like where we are as a planet, you know, and I um, and I think we have so many answers for that. Still to come, Jepchumba talks to Wale about her work at the Concord High School in Kenya, a school that she built with her family and focuses on technology and agriculture. You're the director of a school in Kenya, Concord High School, a school that, and I quote, gives young women the tools to become innovators in the fields of art, design, engineering, science, technology, and mathematics. And it's very interesting. We've spoken a lot about this idea of coming back to our heritage, coming back to and not forgetting what it means to be a human being and reaching back into the legacies of leaders like Wangari Mathai. And something that struck me is farming is an area that's a part of, that's a part of the curriculum at Concord High School. I was wondering what the motivation behind that is. Is it an intentional thing? How do you see the potential impact that women can have, that African girls can have on how we imagine the world differently? About Concord Girls, like everything in my life that has had huge significance has happened outside of my planning it. My grandfather has sort of organized, engineered his life in a way where he tried to make the most impact in everybody's life. He built schools, a college, university. Like, he left an enormous legacy that we sort of live under the shadow of. Um, and um, one of the things that he did was sort of call my my mother and my aunt, and I sort of got roped into it, of this responsibility of building a school, because we always talked about a school. My aunt, who suddenly passed away in the middle of this project was an architect my mom um is like a person in like you know in sort of the creative arts she was a lecturer for fashion and technology for fashion for many years in textiles she just completed she actually used building the school as a way to procrastinate from doing her phd she's in the middle of (laughs) doing her phd and it was such a painful process that she would rather build the school from scratch in order to avoid like doing all of the work but there was this call from my grandfather and to like do to to build a school my aunt sketched up the sketches and my mom and I sat there and I was sort of the contrarian saying this is impossible how could you do this like you can't just build a school like and um through through this connection between my mother my aunt and my grandfather you were sort of upheld and they would have my grandma my mom 
my mother would have these meetings with the community. And she said, Chipchumba said that she's going to build a school and bring um, 20 computers. And the whole community would start clapping like, yay, bring the computers. And then she would tell me to go to church the next day in front of like a thousand people who are praying over me to like bring technology here. So there was this sort of like pull <laughs> um, from my mother to participate in this project. And it's been so amazing because I... Oh, was wondering about like exactly what are we doing with education while we were concurrently building the school Kenya was going through an educational crisis where students were burning down their schools including their teachers their classmates they were burning down schools in one year there was like over 100 schools burn burnt down and it because and it made me become aware of this educational crisis that we had where we had this long legacy of adopting all these random colonial methodologies of what an African educated mind was and forcing it down a throat of a, a, a generation that was living in a completely different reality. And then once they had, imagine like living, being shipped off to a boarding school in the middle of a rural area, you don't see your parents, you see them only in vacations in which they make you feel like you are a nuisance, a bother, you know, (laughs) you know, um, made me sort of realize like, what is happening? What are we teaching people? And it also made me aware of the fact that I was privileged enough to go to schools all around the world and sort of accumulated this amazing education where the first thing I was always taught was the way you measure education is your exposure to new ideas, your ability to communicate to yourself as a person, your ability to organize yourself to achieve your goals, and also help build a community. And I realized like that was something that was really missing, you know. Um, uh, so Concord Girls has been this initiative for us to also one of the things also I want to point out is with Concord Girls is like it, it seems obvious that a school for women in rural Kenya that's about art, science and technology would receive all of the funding. But it also reveals this weird underbelly of non-governmental organizations that say we want Africans in technology to be, we want to give money to African technology, but only if they download and use our programs, our software, only if they only learn how to upload a CV that doesn't mean anything, or that they have a Facebook account or a Gmail account. And nothing about teaching a person what is code? What is code? Like, I've been to so many let's code to let's give code to Africans or like let's make a girl learn how to code and I've asked many people even in the programs I've been involved with but what is code what does that mean and that is not even answered like code is a language it's like the first most fundamental one and zero like it's such an important thing it's in everything that we do it's like how we see patterns as human beings like it's in weaving like we it's in a lot of the, the ability to code gives you the ability to make something out of nothing because you have the ability to communicate with a machine and tell it to do something. If you look at Concord Girls and what's happening there, you know, training women, equipping young girls to reshape the world through technology, 
and not just even to reshape the world through technology, but equipping young women with the skills that if they did decide to use technology, it would be in ways that would impact the world. In a world where we are digitally immersed and connected to one another through technology, what role and can Africa what role do and can African women play in designing devices and user interfaces that can be used in a new perspective? How does a new generation of African girls invite us to imagine the world differently? I think it's my my focus on women has become is partially just based on my it's much easier for me to create out of my own experience um, because I benefited from going to an all women's university, um, actually the first women's university in America. So <laughs> they never let you forget that. So. So a lot of it, and, and our first, the, the first woman in university in America was founded by a female scientist. So she felt like in order for me to even be in science, I need to even, okay, I'm doing my science career. And now I also have to build an entire university so to sustain, <laughs> to make sure that nobody goes through what I just went through to get here. And I think that instinct is, is there. Um, and also I think that it's important for for me to sort of participate in this place so that art, art, the ability to practice art, to have a liberal arts education is just as fundamental as the STEM start side. And I think a lot of women have been pushed towards going to science, technology, in, like into those things and not realizing that even those designations of science, technology, engineering, mathematics make no sense. Because even if I was to organize it, I wouldn't put mathematics away from art. I wouldn't put mathematics away from music. Music and mathematics, I feel like should be taught simultaneously. Because like, if somebody's not really good at like, writing numbers, they could understand mathematics with music or other mediums. So like these are the parts of restructuring education that we're all having conversations constantly in this continent because of how we were educated. What are you working on now, Jepchumba? Everything I do is in complete accident. I have been thrown into music. I'm so interested in music because I attended this festival, I think, five years ago in Jinja, Uganda, which is the source of the Nile, apparently, which I contest might not be the source, but apparently there are multiple sources of the Nile. That's how a river works. But it's okay, you get to plant a sign. Um, so <laughs> Jinja in Uganda is where the Nile sort of, it turns off and becomes the Nile. And there's this amazing music festival that takes place there, which is like three days of absolute, how I've experienced, complete chaos and craziness. Um, but in it is this experimental underground culture, pan-African culture that we have yet to see, that we yet to see because all of these people around the continent are chatting, WhatsApping each other, sharing music files, collaborating, competing with each other in this online space. Thank you so much, Jeb Chumba, for joining me this afternoon. This was such a great conversation. I think we got some very interesting and very important messages across. And thank you so much for giving me um, your time because it's really rare to come across like an individual who can understand and also is working through so much of the work, you know, and trying to like not only make artwork for art's sake or, you know, things that are interesting, but also speaking to so much that's going on, you know. Um, and I think that having these opportunities is so rare and it feels like very precious. 
the African Mobilities podcast series was made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute in partnership with the School of Architecture and Planning and the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of the Witwatersrand, as well as the Andrew Mellon Foundation. Thank <laughs> you.